0: We're continuing today with our summer series we're calling Biblical or Bogus because we're looking at some things that people think are in the Bible but they're just not in there or some things that are in the Bible but they don't necessarily mean what we think they mean. Last week we, uh, we did a little test. If you weren't here, you can be glad you missed it because <laughs> I had everybody stand up and we raised our hands whether we thought... Certain statements were biblical or bogus, and then whether we were right or wrong, we sat down. I had a list of 12. We got through five. And the same thing had happened in the first service. The Bible is the number one best-selling book of all time. Literally, millions, hundreds of millions of Bibles in our nation. And yet, we just don't seem to know it very well, do we? Every year, Barna Research Group conducts uh, a study for the American Bible Society in which they gauge the, the attitudes and the thoughts, the opinions, the knowledge of Americans about the Bible. The study always uncovers some fascinating truths, and this year was no exception. They found that 88% of Americans own a Bible. That's a pretty high number, a good number. It's down from 93% just a few years ago, but still a, a good strong number, almost 9%. Out of 10 Americans own a Bible. 61% of Americans said they wished they read their Bible more. Is that anybody here today you wish you read your Bible more than you do? Yeah, most of it. 66% said they believe the Bible contains everything a person needs to live a meaningful life. And yet, 47% said they believe that the Bible, the Koran, and the Book of Mormon all teach the same truth. Sixty percent of Americans cannot name five of the Ten Commandments. Sixty-three percent cannot name all four Gospels. Thirty-one percent believe a good person can earn their way to heaven. And eighty-one percent believe that God helps those who help themselves is found in the Bible. I listen to the radio in the car a lot. I, I like to listen to talk radio. My son, Grayson, complains. He says, you like to listen to people talking radio. I like to listen to people singing <laughs> radio. But a lot of times in the car, I'll listen to Dan Dockage. Now, you either know who Dan Dockage is or you do not. It help me very much to try to explain a lot, except that he's a, he's a former basketball coach turned a, a sports analyst and talk show host. Um, he's on ESPN, and he's on 1070, the fan out of Indianapolis. And I, I find myself agreeing with Dockage about 50% of the time, even though most of the time he doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. But about a year ago, I'm listening to Dockage as I'm driving down the road, and, and he's ranting about some basketball player who'd gotten into trouble and who was, who was trying to make a comeback, but he was really struggling, having a hard time. And he, 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 they interviewed the guy, and he said, well, he, he just needed a little bit of help if people would help him. And Dockage said, well, you know what? The Bible says God helps those who help themselves. So I, I sent him a tweet. I sent him this tweet. I don't know if you can read it from where you're at, but it says, at Dan Dockage, Bible does not say God helps those who help themselves. Trust me on this. Made me feel better anyway. But lo and behold, I'm driving on down the road, and they come back from a break, and Dockage reads my tweet on the air. And he starts arguing with me. Right? He says, I don't know you, Pastor Scott, but my mother is a saint, and she goes to Mass every day. And she has always said God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. And if she says it's in the Bible, it's in the Bible. (laughs) Well, with all due respect to Dan Dockage's mother, God helps those who help themselves is not in the Bible. It's bogus. But here's the thing. It sure sounds good, doesn't it? We wish it was in the Bible. I mean, as much as we use it, you never notice that's almost always used as an attack. God helps those who help themselves is, is not ever really said in like a kind and helpful manner. <laughs> it's almost always kind of trying to, to shame somebody into, into action. But the reality is that phrase, God helps those who help themselves, it can help us. There's some things we can learn from there. There's, there's, it can help us with an important warning that we all need to heed. And it can help us to expose an outright lie, and it can also help us to learn a great truth. So today we want to dig a little deeper into that, that phrase, God helps those who help themselves, because it can help us see an important warning. And here's the warning. God's not crazy about laziness. He really just doesn't care for laziness. Like I said, there's a little tiny nugget of truth in that God helps those who help themselves because it nudges us toward this understanding. The first time that it appeared in English was in Poor Richard's Almanac in 1735. Benjamin Franklin put it there, but it didn't originate with him. It originated with Aesop. It was one of Aesop's fables, or the moral of one of his fables. Aesop told this story. A wagoneer was once driving a heavy load along a very muddy way. He came to a part of the road where the wheels sank halfway into the mire. And the more the horses pulled, the deeper sank the wheels. So the wagoneer threw down his whip, knelt down in the mud, and prayed to Hercules. Oh, Hercules, help me in my hour of distress. But Hercules appeared to him and said, Man, don't sprawl there. Get up and put your shoulder to the wheel. For the gods help those who help themselves. So whenever we say that, we're channeling our inner Hercules. Challenging someone to to pick themselves up, to to stop feeling sorry for themselves, to to get to work, to do something, because God helps those who help themselves. The truth is, the Bible does teach that God will not bless laziness. Apparently, Paul had a problem in the churches that he started. Apparently he was so effective at preaching the gospel and and, and painting this picture for them of the return of Christ that in a lot of places where Paul started churches, people quit their jobs. Right? They quit their jobs and just went and camped out on the hillside waiting for Jesus to come back. And so he had to deal with that. One of the places where he dealt with it was Thessalonica. He writes this to to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 10 through 12. All of the scriptures that we will use today are in the message uh, insert that is in your bulletin. You can follow along there or on the screen as we go. 2 Thessalonians three ten through 12. Paul says, Even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Right, your King James says, If a man will not work, let him not eat. And yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. If you need a job, by all means, you should pray. By all means, you should get down on your knees and ask God for a job. Ask him to provide a job for you. Ask him to give you favor when you go on a job interview. Ask him to point you toward opportunities or employment that you might not have been aware of. Ask him to give you discernment. Should I take this job or wait for another? Certainly you should do that. But listen, once you've prayed to God for a job, you don't go plop down on the couch and watch Judge Judy with your phone in your lap, waiting for some employer to call you up and say, oh, please come to work for us. Because it doesn't work that way. You go out and you hit the streets and you knock on doors and you fill out applications. You go to places where you'd like to work. You ask them if they're hiring. You, you, you look actively for a job. I mean, even Jesus told us to ask, seek, and Knock. But we've all known people who wouldn't pour a cup of water on themselves if they were on fire. Right down home, they used to say, that guy won't hit a lick at a snake. And my dad had a saying, it's peculiar. I I just know that he always used it when he thought someone was lazy. He would say, that guy stands around with dead lice falling off of him. I don't know. I don't know exactly (laughs) what that meant, but it meant he was lazy. I don't know where it came from. Laziness is built into our flesh. It's built into our flesh. That's why Paul had to say what he said to the Thessalonians. That's why he had to correct those people in churches and places where he'd gone and taught about the return of Christ. Because our tendency is to be lazy. Some people would just love to, to lie around and have God drop food into their mouths when they, and then massage their jaws so they could chew it up and then tickle their throats so they could swallow it. I saw a cartoon this week. A bird was laying on the psychiatrist's couch. And he said, my mother threw up in my mouth. <laughs> well, we all know some people that would, would rather live that way, right? But, but God blesses initiative. God, God when it comes to the, to the area of work and career, because I'm going to make an important distinction here in a little bit. Okay, don't get carried away. Don't run out of here saying, oh, Pastor Scott changed everything up today. No, I didn't. He blesses initiative when it comes to the area of work and career and industry and, 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 and applying ourselves. He gave us a, a, an example in the book of Proverbs of the ant. Now, aren't ants crazy little creatures? An anthill just looks chaotic, doesn't it? They're running every which direction. But they, you know what? They all have a specific job to do, and they're all doing it. And in fact, the survival of the colony depends on them all doing their job. Here's what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. But you lazy bones, how long will you sleep? I want to ask my kids that during the summer. When will you wake up? A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. God blesses initiative. So there's a little bit of truth there and this god helps those who help themselves there's a little bit that, that nudges us toward a, a subtle but very important warning but there's danger here also because bottom line it's an outright lie it is a lie when we think that the best help is self help it's a lie A dangerous lie. Because it promotes self-reliance. It promotes self-centeredness. You know, marketing and advertising for years. They told us that there was one word that you could put in your ad or on the cover of your magazine or in your offer that would catch people's attention. What was that word? Hmm? Free. Free. That word was going to catch their attention. But do you know there's been a subtle shift in the last 12 to 15 years? And now, marketers and advertisers say that the one word that will draw people's attention to your ad, to to your offer, to your flyer, is the word Y-O-U. You. Because it's all about us. It's all about me. You go in the bookstore. The largest section is self-help. Self-improvement. It's the, it's the single most populous um, genre of literature in nonfiction. Every month, hundreds of titles are published devoted to helping us help ourselves. There are books to help us lose weight and live longer and fight off disease. And- Books to help us make money and protect our money and invest our money and use our money wisely. Books to help us find a companion and to be a better husband, a better wife, that will raise shiny, happy children and have well-behaved pets. Books that tell us how to be happier, how to achieve more, how to go farther, how to get a better job, how to advance in our careers. In the self-help section, we learned that men and women are apparently from different planets. That we all need our own personal owner's manual. That there are seven or eight or ten or twenty things we all do that mess up our lives or our kids' lives or our careers or dinner. But we can overcome it all if we'll just buy the daggum book. right? We'll just pump down the $30 and buy the book. So millions of dollars are spent every year to buy books that we think will give us the edge, the secret, right? The unknown, unheard of way to help ourselves out of our problems. But the trouble is, all we're doing with self-help is strengthening the flesh. It's flesh management. All we're doing is teaching ourselves to be self-centered instead of seeking the one who can truly help us. Someone sent me a list of self help book titles they'd like to see. Here's the top seven. Number one, chicken free soup for the vegetarian soul. You'll get that on the way home. You'll just laugh, you'll laugh your head off. <laughs> Number two, the 7,000 habits of highly compulsive people. <laughs> Number three, stupidity for dummies. <sighs> Number four, I'm okay. You're in big trouble. Number five, men are from Mars, women are from Hades. Hey, I didn't write it, I'm just reading it. Number number six is my favorite, teaching yourself to read. But then this is my book here, number seven, How to Lose Five Pounds in Six Years. Hot dog, that's the diet I'm on. Maybe we could add an eighth that list, how to rip people off writing self-help books. Because you always got to have the next one, right? They're written to give us more self-assurance, self-confidence. And there's some areas of life where that's useful, maybe in the business arena in the athletic field. But when it comes to our relationship with God, listen, self-sufficiency, self-reliance does not lead us to God. It leads us away from God. You know this. Because you've tried it. So have I. There are at least two dangers of this spiritual self-reliance, spiritual self-sufficiency. One, it makes us prideful and arrogant. Muhammad Ali never lacked self-confidence. Now, some of you kind of date yourself. Some of you younger people may not realize he was the greatest boxer who ever lived, probably who ever will live. And I remember when I was a kid watching him stick his face right in the camera you know, and he would say, I am the greatest, mm. and we loved it. And they told a story about Ali, and it was told for a joke, or told as the truth. It may have been a joke, but it was told as the truth. It said that Ali got on a plane one time, and the flight attendant came by and said, you need to buckle your seatbelt, and Ali said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And without skipping a beat, the flight attendant said, Superman don't need no airplane either. Buckle up. from the day we are born we're self-centered self-focused self-promoting self-protecting the the most self-centered creature on the face of the earth is a little baby I'm sorry but it's true because at 2 o'clock in the morning when that baby wakes up and it's diapers wet and it's hungry this thought never crosses its mind mom and dad are really tired and they're trying to get some rest. I'm uncomfortable, but I'll lay here for a little while and be quiet. <laughs> Maybe that happened at your house. never happened in mine. I mean, it was five-alarm bell time. Rarrr! Get up! Take care of me! It's part of our flesh. We, we create our own little self-centered universe. Bill Gillum says we draw a, a ring around us, and then we declare ourselves Lord of the Ring. I'm in charge here. Try to teach a three-year-old something. Right? Try to show them something or teach them something. Show them how to do something. You're going to reach a point in that process where they say, I can do it myself. We're proud of ourselves when we do something good. When we accomplish something, we want the credit. You know the Bible says every good thing in our lives comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes to us from God the Father. That's what the Word says. You ask a successful person the secret to their success and the chances are they'll tell you they worked harder than anybody else or they, they worked smarter than anybody else. Uh, even if they had a bit of luck, they took what was given to them and they, they really applied themselves and worked hard. But you know what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18? It says, He, meaning God, He did all this so that you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you the power to be successful. And if God decided to alter one or two events in our lives or to rearrange a couple of our brain cells, we might not have anything. Let's make sure we give credit where credit is due. Let me tell you why pride is dangerous. Pride and arrogance is dangerous. Because 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, says God opposes the proud, but favors the humble. <laughs> I don't want to be on the opposing team against God, do you? Spiritual self-reliance makes us prideful and arrogant. And then it makes us forget our, our, our dependence on God. Because if we believe God helps those who help themselves then we've probably convinced ourselves that we can handle just about anything that comes along on our own. Our own skill, our own terms. Uh, You know, that way, see, we don't have to bother God except with the really big stuff. No, no, God, you know, i I got this. I can handle this. something big comes along, I'll call on you. But here's the deal. God isn't looking for self-reliant people. We've been taught that over about 200 years of the American version of Christianity. But that's not the truth. God is not looking for self-reliant people. He's seeking people who understand what it means to depend on him for everything. Everything. Jeremiah 17, 5. Very strong words. It says, this is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in in mere humans who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. Some of us are sitting here today thinking that we can trust our education or our experiences or our abilities or our our career connections. And and so we don't really need God. I mean, God helps those who help themselves. It's It's a lie that can lead us to think that maybe it's not us who needs God's help. It's God who needs our help oh you lucky Jesus I've showed up here today to give you some help there was a woman in the Old Testament who thought that way her name was Sarah her husband's name was Abraham you've heard of him they didn't have any children but God gave them a promise gave Abraham a specific promise that you're going to have a son and one day your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky more numerous than the, 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 the grains of sand on the beaches of the oceans. And Abraham believed it. That's so what the Bible says when, uh, about Abraham over and over again. It says, Abraham believed God. And we do told Sarah, and she just laughed right in his face. Because see, what you don't know yet, or maybe you forgot, is that uh, Abraham was 85, and Sarah was 75. It's not exactly the age that you start saying, you know, we really ought to start a family. Well, they tried for a while, but they didn't get pregnant. And Sarah decided that what was needed was, was for her to help God out. I mean, you know, God's the one kind of holding up this plan anyway, and God helps those who, who help themselves. So she developed her little scheme, and we read about it in Genesis 16, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar, so Sarah, I said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. It's all God's fault. Go and, sleep. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abraham agreed with Sarah's proposal. Now think about this. Okay? You can see the wheels turning in Sarah's mind. God promised me a child. It hasn't happened yet. He's holding up progress, so I'll just help him out. I'll let one of my, my, one of my servants have children for me and the, the promise will be fulfilled. And it's, you know, I snickered a little bit there because think about this. Think about an old man whose wife comes to him with one of her young servant girls and says, I want you to sleep with her so, you can, so she can have our child. Can't you see, old Abe? Well, if you insist, You think it'll help? I guess I'll sacrifice. I better stop. Hagar's a servant. She's a slave. She doesn't have any any say in the matter, but she knows what's at stake. I mean, she's heard about the promise. She she knows what the stakes are here. And so the Bible says when she became pregnant by Abraham, that her attitude just completely turned around towards Sarah. She began to hold her in content. Why? Because I'm more important than you. Now this promise is going to come through me, not you. But everybody in this game was messed up. Hagar does have a son. She has Abraham's son. His name is Ishmael. And, and he grows up to be the father of all the Arab people. And an angel told Hagar this about her son in, in Genesis 16, 12. said, this son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Now, flip forward about 13, 14 years later. Abraham's 100 years old. Sarah is 90. She gets pregnant and gives birth to a son, and they name him Isaac, which means, anybody know? Laughter. Because Sarah laughed when she heard the promise all those years ago. And they named him Laughter. And so the son of the promise does come. Sarah does bear the child. And all is well that ends well, right? Mm-mm. Because watch this today the Arab Muslims trace their history back to Abraham through Ishmael, while the Jews trace their history, their lineage, and ancestry back to Abraham through Isaac. And Now think about this. 4,000 years of hatred and animosity and war and killing between Jews and Arabs can be tied directly to a bad decision Sarah made to help God out. What would this world be like if she had waited? If she trusted God? when we take things into our own hands and try to help God out, the results, thank God, are not usually this disastrous. But they are dangerous. Because our plans are a poor substitute for God's plans. And we've got to learn, we've got to grasp that that God doesn't need our help. We've got to understand that God helps those who help themselves is a lie. It's a dangerous lie. But it can help us learn a great truth. That God helps those who cannot help themselves. He kind of specializes in that. If we think we're powerful enough to to help ourselves, then that's exactly what we'll do. We'll strike out on our own. We'll try to do it ourselves. but, But God, over and over and over in Scripture, responds to those who look to Him for help. Those who have nowhere else to turn. If you need God's help today, there are a couple of ways to find it. First of all, we got to remember that, that God helps those who admit they can't help themselves. That's the first place we've got to admit that we can't help ourselves. It sounds easy, but it's not. It's not because we don't want to look weak. And we'll do anything. We will, we will lie and we will fake and we will pose and we will posture not to look weak in front of another person. And then we've been raised in this culture, we've been taught to admire the the strongest person, right? The fastest runner, the highest jumper, the best shooter. We've been taught to to admire that self-made man as if there was any such thing. We've learned to prefer to, to do it ourselves. But when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our relationship with God... We can't do it ourselves. We've got to admit that we're sinners who desperately need outside help, who desperately need his help. In an outstanding book, The Grace Awakening, written by Chuck Swindoll. Let me just go on record here and say, if you haven't read that book, you need to go read it. Okay? You can go into almost any Goodwill, any thrift store and find a copy. you want to buy a brand new copy, that's your option too. But if you haven't read The Grace Awakening, you've got to read it. Listen to what he says. I consider the most dangerous heresy on earth the emphasis on what we do for God instead of what God does for us. Some are so convinced that what we do for God is primary that they will argue nose to nose. And you know, let me pause there. I have found that to be true. I have found that when you try to help people see the the distinction Between living in grace and living enmeshed in in performance and legalism is the difference between D-O and D-O-N-E. People will fight you tooth and nail. They'll call you a heretic. Hyper grace, they call it. Cheap grace. (laughs) Grace wasn't cheap. None of us could afford it. These people, Swindoll goes on, they're often the ones who claim that their favorite verse of scripture is God helps those who help themselves. But the truth is, God helps the helpless, the undeserving, those who don't measure up, those who fail to achieve his standard. (laughs) Nevertheless, the heresy continues louder now than ever in history. Most people see themselves as masters of their own fate, as captains of their own souls. And why not? It supports humanity's all-time favorite subject. Self. Compare the statement, God helps those who help themselves, who help themselves. Compare that to the words found in Psalm 94, verses 17 to 19. Unless the Lord had helped me, I would soon have settled in the silence of the grave. I cried out, I am slipping, but your unfailing love, O Lord, supported me. When doubts filled my mind, your comfort gave me renewed hope and cheer. That's King David writing those words. That's King David saying, I was on the verge of death, and I was helpless to do anything about it. God, if you don't help me, it's all over. And that has to be our approach to God. We have to approach God with the attitude that, God, you're my only source of help. Without you, I'm as good as dead. God told Paul, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Not in your achievement. Not in your obedience. Not in your performance. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. That was the first theology any of us ever learned because we learned the words to a little song that told us little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. If we're willing to admit that we're helpless, that's when God helps those who can't help themselves. And then we need to trust him alone for help god is not on the buffet folks he's not one of our choices he's not one among several resources for us and you know if this one and this if if this from column a and c and d doesn't work out then i can go with this one i can always go with god that's just not the case david again writing in psalm 121 verses 1 through 3 says i look up to the mountains does my help come from there My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let you stumble. The one who watches over you will not slumber. In the Hebrew language, it's clear there that David is asking a question. Does our help come from the mountains? No. Our help comes from God. See, David knew something. He'd been a shepherd. He'd been a soldier. He knew some things about the mountains. He knew that there was danger in the mountains. He knew that in the mountains your enemies could hide. He knew that in the mountains bandits and thieves could hide themselves away, lay in wait for those who came by. He knew that in the mountains there were wild animals of every kind. And the only reason he could go to sleep, he says here, is because he knew that God was watching over him and he never slept. Something's hiding in the mountains of your life. An enemy? A thief? bandit? Something wild threatening to, do to destroy you? What is it? What's hiding in the mountain of your life? What's keeping you awake at night? What, what drove you here today? Well, I always come every Sunday. Well, not all of us, not every Sunday. Something brought you here. Let me give you the soundest piece of advice. This is the best thing I'll say all day. Trust him. Did you get that? Trust him. He never sleeps. He never gets tired. He's watching over us and we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be alone. Trust him. I heard about a businessman who was going on a, going on a trip. He's going to be gone a month. He's a Christian man, so he calls his family together and he, he prays for them, prays over them before he leaves. And he prays, Lord, please, please protect my wife and kids while I'm gone. And after he finished praying, his wife smiled at him and said, Thanks for the prayer, but who do you think protects us when you're here? Everybody knows the Titanic, right? Because there's been so many books and documentaries and TV shows. The, the second highest grossing film of all time. They've released it in two versions. Uh, it's been out in, in 3D now. and uh, like Maybe 4D next year. I don't know. Whatever comes next. But everybody knows the story uh, of the Titanic. It was the fastest, the uh, biggest, the most luxurious ship ever built up to its time. A crowning symbol of technological achievement. When it was dedicated in May 1911, one of the employers or pl- employees of the, the White Star Line, the, the company that put the Titanic on the water, he made this remark. Even God himself could not sink this ship. That held up about a year because we all know what happened on April 14, 1912. The Titanic sideswiped an iceberg, gashes in a starboard hull 300 feet long. It took only two and a half hours for the great ship to sink to the bottom of the North Atlantic. 705 people made it out in the lifeboats. 1,528 people lost their lives because there was no lifeboat for them. You see, the ship was built to carry 3,000 passengers, but there was only space in the lifeboats for 1,000 people because you don't need lifeboats on an unsinkable ship, do you? Can I tell you that that iceberg was not responsible for the destruction of that ship? Human arrogance and self-centeredness and self-reliance was what destroyed that ship. And our world is a lot like the Titanic, steaming full speed ahead with music playing and the parties going strong, unaware, unconcerned about the danger that lies ahead. The the Titanic is a tragic example of of an attitude that says, you know what, I can handle this. I can do it all myself. Nothing can stop me. And besides that, I'm having fun at the party. I don't need God. Don't bother me with your iceberg reports. But folks, there's only one lifeboat. And his name is Jesus. And if we put our our trust and our faith in him, he will carry us safely over the waters of eternal judgment. But before that can happen, we've got to admit that we're helpless, that we're sunk without him. And then we've got to trust him with all our heart. And we've got to constantly remind ourselves that God helps those who cannot help themselves. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes. Father God, we uh, we stand uh, in awe of the way that you work and, and the way that you operate in in the mighty things that you do, but in, in small things as well. Because Father, you've just set things up; you've designed a system whereby we, we learn and grow in incrementally. We take small steps, take bigger steps at sometimes and smaller steps at others, but but we learn in a process and we learn. In steps and stages and, and today Father, you have um, you've nudged somebody a little further down the line than where they were when they came in because there were uh, a lot of us God who walked in here today self-confident, self-reliant <laughs> and and really um, mindlessly optimistic because that has never worked for us ever. Maybe for a few days or a few weeks. But whenever we've tried to go go it alone, whenever we've tried to make it happen ourselves, whenever we've tried to, to depend on ourselves and our ability and skill, we have always crashed and burned. Sometimes it was just a scratch or a dent, a fender bender, but sometimes it was catastrophic and we being who we are picked ourselves up, dusted ourselves off tried it again some of us have done it so often and for so long that we really don't quite expect the Christian life to really work for us It, it appears to work for some other people but most people we know they have experiences similar to ours so we kind of think this is what it's supposed to be. And yet, God, you, you have this way of coming in at the right time with the right word in the right situation and, and, and nudging us a little further down the line. Giving us a push, God, away from relying on ourselves and looking to ourselves trying to fix it, clean up our own mess and fix our own self. Father, what you want is not our achievement or our skill, not not our perfecting our flesh. What you want is our complete and total dependence on you. What you want is our surrender to you to allow you to come in and live in us, as us, through us. And so in this sacred moment, Father, before we leave here and go go our separate ways, I ask that your Holy Spirit would move and work. It's my prayer in Christ's name. Now while your heads remain bowed, please, and your eyes remain closed, and I'm going to make this appeal occasionally. I don't know why. Some people feel like they have to look around during this time. I really, I, I don't understand you. Okay, I'm not trying to be mean or ugly to you, but I, what we're trying to create is an atmosphere where people feel comfortable sharing some, you know, some really tough stuff that's going on in their lives. And some of us felt, you know, I, you know, maybe sometime in your past a pastor lied and said I see that hand and there wasn't no hand. And so you you want to check on me, okay? I don't understand it. So I just appeal to you, if you can, if it's possible, can you keep your head bowed and your eyes closed just for a moment? Let's let's make sure that this train's not running faster than it was when you got on it. Somebody came in here today, like we go into an emergency room, wounded and hurting and having to have some help. Let me see your hand. Where are you? There's more, but we'll start there. Listen, it's no accident that you're here today. I don't care if you come every Sunday or you come once a month or this is the first time you've ever been in the door. There's no accident that you're in this place today. God wants you to know it's not up to you to fix it. It's not up to you to make it right. It's not up to you to straighten yourself out so that the river will flow again, so that he'll bless you again. That's not what he wants from you. He doesn't want a single thing you've got to give. He just wants you. And, he, and somebody needs to hear this. He's not punishing you. He doesn't work that way. The only thing he wants to do is love you. thing he wants to do is be kind and merciful and gracious and forgiving. And he waits. (laughs) He waits for you to put the shovel down. (laughs) Don't you think that hole's deep enough? He waits for you to stop trying to make this thing work yourself. Isn't it exhausting? Father God, for those hands that were raised and for others that for, from whatever fear, confusion, lack of understanding, unpreparedness.